Good morning, church. I wonder if you know what a glorious thing it is that I'm able to address you as the church. Do you have any idea how special you are to God? What a treasure you are, how very much you are loved. Do you know how much you mean to him? How valuable you are? You have been on God's mind and in God's heart from the beginning of creation. Church, can you even grasp how much God <clears throat> cherishes you, that he gave his son and his spirit to you? He wanted you to exist, and he brought you into being by dying for you and giving you new life. This morning, I want to talk about the church and why it is central to why Christ came. It's part of Christmas. Jesus came so that he could redeem us from our alienation from God. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, and that enabled him to create a community of the redeemed, the forgiven. And then he empowered this community to bear witness of him and of his kingdom to a lost and dying world. What I mean by that is that Jesus did not come primarily to save a bunch of individuals from hell. He came primarily to build a church with a bunch of saved individuals. <clears throat> you can pray for my voice. It's <clears throat> I've been struggling all week. Acts 20, 28 tells us that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Therefore, the church is not insignificant to God. No, the church is God's glorious gift to us. Now, when we talk about the church, we're either talking about the universal church or the local church, because scripture speaks of both the universal and the local church. The universal church refers to all true believers throughout all of history, from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. The universal church it has no specific address. You can't drive to it. You can't see it with your eyes. So some have called it the invisible church, and only God really knows who are the members of the universal church. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, he spoke of the church of all ages, the universal church. The local church refers to a group of professing believers in Christ who meet in some particular location on a regular basis. Now this is a church that you can physically go to. This is the visible church, the one that you can see and touch. In Matthew 18, 17, Jesus talked about a, a sinful person who was refusing to listen to the correction of two or three of their friends. And Jesus said, hey, if they refuse to listen, go tell it to the church. Well, obviously, that must be a specific church in a specific space and time. The local church knows who its members are. In the New Testament, the majority of the focus is going to be on the local church which is not at all surprising since it's mostly made up of letters written to local churches. So the word church is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia is a translation of the Hebrew word kahel. Now the word kahel referred to an assembly, a gathering, a congregation of people. And the Greek word ekklesia is virtually identical in its meaning. In Greek culture, that word ekklesia that referenced a gathering of citizens who were going to conduct the affairs of the state. The word ek means out of. The word klesia means to call. Ekklesia is an assembly 
of the called out ones. So we know that the Hebrew word kehel, the Greek word ekklesia, is a reference to a group of people gathered together for a common purpose. I think it's safe to say by definition, the church is an assembly of the saints. It is a gathering together of the called out ones. This is really a rather simple definition, but I do believe that it carries some rather significant implications for us. If we see ourselves as those who have been called out by God's grace, called out of the world, called out of sin, called out of darkness, and we believe that the same grace has called us into union with Christ, called us to be citizens of his kingdom, called us to live lives of glory for his name rather than ours, then we have to recognize that we have also been called out, that we have been called out of one way of life and called into another. Now, just as Israel was called out of Egypt and called into the promised land, we have been called out of our former manner of living and called into a new community of believers who are committed to Christ and to each other. The significant implication is that being part of a church is part of your Christian calling. It is central and necessary to your identity and your experience. I believe that's true. I believe it's biblical. But there are millions of Christians who have come to feel that gathering together is not all that important in their journey with Christ. I recently saw a report that said in the last 25 years, 40 million people have stopped going to church. For many people, being part of a local church is seen as an option that they could take or leave, or worse, as an obstacle that they actively avoid. Now let me share some statistics with you so that you can see what I'm talking about. In a recent study by George Barna, he noted that ever since the pandemic, 22% of Christians older than 60 stopped attending church altogether. 20% of all the other age groups have gotten out of the habit of gathering together with God's people. And among Christians of all ages who do go to church, 40% of them do not come on a weekly basis. They come once or twice a month. And Barnett's study showed that among Christians aged 27 to 42, the millennials, and these are people who said that their faith is very, very important to them, 25% of them agreed on a survey question, survey statement, and that statement was, do you believe that the church is irrelevant in today's world? 25% of Christian millennials agreed with that statement, one quarter. Now, statistics like these make me feel concerned about the state of the church in America. It makes me concerned for Loudonville Community Church because it reflects a troubling mindset among people today. Now, some who have stopped going to church say that they don't need to go to church because they are the church. Or they take the view that they don't believe they're called to go to church. They're called to be the church. And you can kind of make sense of that to a degree. I certainly believe that people are the church. None of us think that this building is the church. And yes, God definitely calls us to be the church. Be the light of the world. Be the salt of the earth be his witnesses, be his hands and feet carrying his love to hurting people. 
But by definition, the local church is a gathering of those who have been called out by God to fulfill his purposes in this world. And one of God's purposes is that we gather together in community. For centuries, Christians have normally done that in a building that was designed to accommodate their numbers. I believe that we are called by God to come together as a community of saved sinners. I do not believe that God has instructed us to live out our own personal faith as disconnected individuals who desire a one-on-one relationship with God, but have no real connection with all the rest of God's family. The local church is God's idea. It is his plan. It is his provision for us. We need the local church because only in a community of believers can we reflect the glory of our triune God. God is a relational being. He exists as an eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within this Godhead, the three exist as one in perfect love and harmony. Because God is communal and relational in his essence, he calls the church to also be a relational community to reflect his glory as we learn to love one another and to dwell in peace. The more the church can accurately reflect God's glory, the more it will be transformed into the very image of Christ. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God designed the church to be a community of transformation, where he is actively moving among us, changing us, growing us, reshaping our thoughts, our attitudes, and our behaviors so that we look like Jesus, we love like Jesus, we begin to think like Jesus, we sound like him, we behave like him. God gave us the church so that we could be in a transformational relationship with one another, and that will result in God's glory, and that will result in our good. The church needs to come together, not only for God's glory, but also to function as the body of Christ. First, First Corinthians chapter 12 speaks at length about the church as his body. And we're going to look at verses 12 to 14, which say, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. And even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And Paul goes on to say that all the parts of the body are important. Each part is needed. Each part contributes to the overall well-being and function of the whole. In verses 21 and 22, We see it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Paul celebrates the diversity and the value of each part. There are no throwaway members in the body of Christ. 
In verses 24 and 26, Paul says, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, Scripture makes it clear that every part of the body has been put together by God. And far from being disconnected and divided from each other, living isolated and insulated from each other, the members of the body are called to care for one another, to connect with one another in times of pain and in times of joy. In verse 27, listen to what Paul says to this Corinthian church. This is the church that has problems with internal strife, arguing, bickering, that he described as carnal, that had tolerated sexual scandal, had sued each other in public court. They struggled with pride and idolatry and selfishness. They abused the Lord's Supper. They were all mixed up doctrinally about marriage and the resurrection and food offered to idols. To this group of people, he says in 27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. I find that an amazing statement. Paul did not see the church through eyes of frustration or impatience or sheer disgust. He did not dismiss them as, you're too far gone. You're not worth my investment anymore. He did not consider them irrelevant. He wanted them to know who they really were. He wanted them to know that they, as our church, are much more than a group of people who have problems. They are, in fact, the body of Christ. And each individual member was a part of it. You know what that tells me? That God has a lot more love and patience toward his people than we think he does. Maybe than we think he should. He did not disown the church. He did not distance himself from them because they were messed up. Instead, he defined them as his very body. He identifies them as, you're the ones who belong to me. In verse 28, Paul let them know that God gave them apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and healings and various tongues and administrators and helpers. In other words, God's all in. He's wholly invested in his church because it is the body of Christ on earth. Each one of you are part of that body. Each one of you are needed. Each one of you adds value and meaning to the church because not one of you is unnecessary. We can't do without one of you. You're needed. My concern with the growing trend today of Christians disconnecting from the local church, it makes me wonder, how do they function as a member of the body? How does the body invest in their life? How do... How is it that they're able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice if they're disconnected? Now, the author of Hebrews understood that for a variety of reasons, there were some Christians back in the first church who had developed a habit of no longer meeting with the church. And in response to that, we have Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works not neglecting to meet together, 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we see that the Bible encourages us to make sure that we continue to meet together as a community. We're told to do that all the more as we see the day drawing near. That day of drawing refers to Christ's return. And we know that as that day draws near, things will get harder. They'll get worse. They don't get better. In Matthew 24, Jesus let us know that before he returns, the forces of darkness increase. There will be great tribulation and earthquake and natural tragedies. And life will be hard. And if that weren't bad enough, he said, that's just the beginning of birth pangs. In verse 9, he said, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So could it be that one reason that Christians want to be in the habit of coming together is that God designed the church as a provision of protection and spiritual support and that we will all be much stronger together in our faith than we ever would be alone? 1 Peter 5.8 says that we should be careful, that we should be watchful because our enemy, the, the devil, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you're isolated from the flock, you are much easier prey than if you are surrounded by the flock. Jesus said that things will get so bad that the love of many will grow cold. It has been said that that Christians are a lot like individual coals of fire. Put them together and they glow hot. But if they're separated from one another, they grow cold. Commenting on the warmth of Christian fellowship, Martin Luther said, Now at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Have you ever experienced that? I have. Scripture encourages us to make sure that we meet together because it is precisely in our coming together as one that our souls are stirred up in love. It is in community with other Christians that we participate together in doing good works. Our presence and our participation in the life of the church isn't itself an encouragement to others. People are encouraged to see you. And we ourselves are encouraged by belonging to a fellowship of God's family. Now, obviously, I understand that there are believers who would love to attend church, but they're unable to because of medical reasons or some other life situation they find themselves in, and that prevents them from coming. And then that, if that's your situation, rest assured that God knows your heart. And just as 2 Timothy 2.19 says, the Lord knows those who are his. But the majority of people identified in those st- statistics who no longer attend church have continued to carry on with all the other activities of their life. It's not that they are actually unable to go, but they have gotten themselves out of the habit. Isn't that what Hebrews 10, 25 says? That some 
have developed a habit of not going. Church attendance, it's a habit. Now, when it comes to habits, we're either reinforcing them or we're starting new ones. And some habits are easy to start and hard to stop. Some habits we wish that we could easily do away with. If some people are in the habit of biting their nails or twirling their hair. Other habits serve us very well, like being in the habit of praying, being in the habit of reading scripture. Habits are decisions manifested in a behavior. Making a decision, that takes time and energy. Habits keep us from having to make that same decision over and over again. If you're employed, you don't wake up every day weighing the options, exploring whether or not you feel like going to work that day, taking the mental energy of deciding if you should go or just stay home. When we take a job, we make a decision that we go to work every day, we need to. So we just get in the habit of going, and that's what we do. We don't agonize it every morning. If you're a student, you just get up and you go to school. You are in the habit of going to school. You've made a decision. Since a habit is a decision that's already been made, we are free from deciding. We've made it. That means if you want to stop a habit, you do have to make a decision. That's where it starts. You need to intentionally choose a different course of action. Now, new habits generally are going to require multiple decisions to not do the same thing that you had gotten quite used to doing and intentionally doing something else. I read that new habits take 30 to 60 days to form. If someone who's listening to this has gotten out of the habit of coming to church on a weekly basis, please consider making a decision to be in fellowship with God's people every Sunday for the next two months. If you do that, you will be following a very good example. Jesus' childhood family was in the habit of attending the festivals. In Luke 2, 42, we read, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom, according to their habit. As an adult, Jesus himself was in the habit of going to the synagogue. Luke 4, 16 tells us that as was his custom, as was his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The Apostle Paul was in the habit of gathering with the saints on Sunday in Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul preached. Since it is the beginning of a brand new year tomorrow, it is a great time for all of us to reflect on our habits. Are the habits we have helping us stay connected with God and his people? Have we developed habits that are actually hindering our spiritual life and keeping us disconnected? Sometimes people have drawn back from a church because they have been hurt. I understand that, and I'm very sorry if that was your experience. There have been times when I have been extremely hurt by a church. Others have become disillusioned with it, disappointed with it. And I can honestly say I have felt the same way at times. I think if we are part of a church family long enough, 
Eventually, we are, going to be, we are going to be offended by something. We will disagree with the decision that the board made. We're not going to love every single song or every single sermon. Over time, we're just going to see human shortcomings. And many that were once involved in the church have, have come to see it as something that, frankly, they can just as well do without. In a study done last year by LifeWay Research, 66%, two-thirds, of Americans said that worshiping alone or with their family was a valid replacement for attending church. That means that millions of people feel that local church is something they don't need. They can do without it. Not only that, but they can easily replace it with their own version of church. Now, as popular as that opinion is, I don't believe that we're called to leave the church. I believe we're called to love it. I think we should grow in our love for the church because Christ loves the church and he gave himself for it. As a follower of Christ, I want to be someone who loves what Christ loves. Listen to what Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 say. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We, the community of believers, the church, are called to imitate God by walking in love. And the love that we're called to imitate is nothing less than the love that Christ has for the church. And what a love that is. Christ did not give up on the church. He gave himself up for the good of the church. That is the example that we're called to imitate. We are called to give ourselves, to give our time, our talents, our spiritual gifts, our prayers, give our encouragement, our compassion, our love, and yes, give our money for the good of the local church. And when we choose to do that, we have just become a lot closer to imitating God's love for the church than the alternative option of simply no longer meeting with it. It has been said that you can be committed to the church without being committed to Christ, but you cannot be committed to Christ and not be committed to the church. Corey Ten Boom said, be united with other Christians. A wall with loose bricks, it's not good. The bricks must be cemented together. The church has its problems but the church is glorious because the church has Christ and Christ has the church. That relationship between Christ and the church is beautifully described for us in Ephesians 5. In verse 23, we read that Christ is the head of the body, the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Here we see that the church is it's much more than what it appears at first glance. It may look like, just seems like a group of nice, like-minded individuals. They come to a building once a week. They sing a few songs. They hear a message and make a donation. They enjoy each other's company over coffee, and then they go home. And some would think that's about it. But the church is so much more than a social gathering. It is a spiritual reality of the highest magnitude possible. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, the church is 
the body of Christ. And where the body is, there is the head. We know that when the church gathers together, Christ is present in a way that is quite different than we than when we when we are alone. In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That word gathered in the Greek is the Greek word sunago. It's the basis of synagogue. And it means to assemble together, to come together. It's used in Acts 11.26 in reference to Paul and Barnabas gathering together with the church in Antioch. It's the root word used in Hebrews 10.25 of what people were neglecting to do. They were neglecting to gather together. So the implication is that this is more than two or three Christian friends just having coffee somewhere. It's more of a church meeting. Matthew 18.20 tells us that Christ is present in the community of his saints. He is united to the church in the same way that your head is united to your body. You don't exist without that connection, and neither does the church. This church is nothing without Christ. Christ is everything to us. He is our life because our life is in him. And the wonderful thing is that his life is in us. Listen to what Ephesians 5 goes on to say starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved creation. No, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this is a great mystery, but I am speaking concerning Christ and the church. Because Christ is the head of the church, he is always connected to the body. Because he is always connected to it, he is always building it up. Because he is always building it up, he's always nourishing it. Because he's always nourishing it, he's always cherishing it. He does not see the church as disconnected from himself. The church is a member of his own body, his own flesh and bones, it says. Remember in Acts 9, 4, when Christ appeared to Saul, who had been persecuting the church? And what did Christ say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people or my church? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How much more could Christ identify with the church since he is that connected to his body? I want to be that connected to his body because he loves the church so very much. I want to love the church so very much. 
There is no organization on earth as glorious as the church. I know it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always feel like that. But the truth is that there's nothing more glorious than the body of Christ coming together with Christ as its head. There is no other organization or noble cause or wonderful agency that Christ ever bled and died for. Only the church. What institution on earth can have more value than that? I hope that we can all grow in our appreciation for the church, for it really is, it is God's glorious gift to us. Some believe that there's not much future for the church. I think they could not be more mistaken. The Apostle John saw the future of the church in heaven. And in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, he wrote this. I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Church, this is our future. And it's a glorious one. Great multitudes in heaven will rejoice over this eternal union between Christ and his bride, the church. So let us love the church and use our time on earth to make the bride ready. Let us adorn the church with our presence, with the fine linen of good deeds and acts of love. And now, let us pray. Father God, as we have considered this glorious gift of your church and how it has meant so much to you that you sent Jesus to bleed and to die for it, and when we think of how you have empowered it with your Holy Spirit to be a living witness of you, we see your triune nature on full display. We behold your glory manifested in the church as you use it to transform us, to mature us, to shape us, to sanctify us for your kingdom. As the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, we now pray for Loudonville Community Church. And we say, Father of glory, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know you, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in your saints? The immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We praise you. 
because you have put all things under Christ's feet and you gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Christ's mighty name we pray, amen.